Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. I'm Scott Schiffer, and today I'm joined by Aaron Newton and Dr. Randall Worley. So Aaron, Randall, good to have you guys here. Great to be back. Yeah, same here. So today we have a, a wide variety of topics that runs uh, the gambit from um, uh, things happening in our culture with stimulus checks for parents and uh, to the discussion of Jesus saving aliens uh, and then coming back around to the whole idea of what it means that God works out things for good. Is it his good or for our good or for the community's good or the church's good or whatever else? And so as we begin, we're going to start with uh, something that uh, I read in the news the other day about the stimulus package from uh, President Biden for his extension of child benefits. And so now if you're a parent and you have uh, children, you get certain payments each month from essentially the middle of July through the end of this year. And uh, so many people got their first payment a few weeks ago in July, I think July 15th or so, whenever that hit. And um, it caused quite a big uproar in social media uh, by a number of parents just really showing their appreciation for getting this and the need for getting this. Uh, and uh, the, the news article I read was in questioning, should this be a normal thing? Should the government just regularly be cutting checks to people for having kids? And so uh, that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. You know, what is the role of the government in helping families have the resources they need to raise their families? Uh, versus, you know, how much people should be paying the government um, as far as taxes and whatnot go. Essentially, what we have here is, um, you know, people pay into the government and now they're getting a tax child credit. And so they're getting sort of a refund, really, is what this is meant to be from uh, money they've already paid in on taxes. So, uh, Randall, what are your thoughts on just, you know, how should the government deal with taxes for people with, with children? It's a tough question. Um... I think uh, biblically, we're invited to uh, show compassion to those who are in need and to actually use the resources we have to help those in need. Uh, I don't think in principle I'm opposed to governments providing that kind of assistance. Uh, I think it's important that we do it in a way that actually helps people. Uh, sometimes, you know, you create programs that are, are poorly thought out and create uh, a life of dependence that, that kind of stifles uh, a person's ability to kind of make a, a productive life for themselves. You know, uh, you, you, we see this in, in countries where the governments, you know, like under communism or whatever, where the government basically assumes this really paternalistic attitude will, will, provide everything for everyone, uh, it, it kind of robs people of a sense of purpose in being able to actually provide something of worth themselves to society. Um, I, don't, I don't know, though, that this particular tax credit that we're talking about is that kind of thing. I, I think giving people back some money for the difficult task of parenting uh, is actually uh, sounds to me like a wise investment as a, as a society. Uh, you know, of all the things we can be uh, putting money into, I think uh, helping parents uh, be parents, uh, I, I think is a positive. So I, I'll admit I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an economist. I, I, I uh, 
probably don't even do a great job with my own economy, much less the economy of, of the nation. But um, those, I guess that's kind of my attitude. I, I, don't, I don't think it's really a bad thing. It doesn't sound like a bad thing to me uh, to, to kind of help out families and encourage, uh, especially after this past year. Now, the article suggested the idea of this becoming a permanent annual thing. Uh, I wonder about that. Uh, it, you know, I, taking I people's tax money well. and then giving some of it back uh, yearly seems like an odd thing to get into. Maybe um, we should just take less of their money to begin yeah, with. Yeah, maybe, maybe just don't <laughs> take so much of it to begin with, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I like the idea. One of the things you mentioned was, you know, um, you know giving people the, the option to have this to use for those who need it. And uh, obviously parents, you know, especially if they're struggling with jobs because of COVID or other things of that nature, uh, you know, I think it could really help them right now. But I think one of the big concerns that also comes up is you get this big, you know, chunk of change back from the government. I guess maybe it's not that big depending on how many kids you have. But, um, you know, you, you get a chunk of change back from the government. And then the question is, are you using it on your kids or are you using it on yourself or for other things? And so obviously the purpose of it is to use it for your kids. When I think about the state of Texas, there's, you know, so many children living below the poverty line that, uh, you know, a, a big issue, at least in North Texas right now, is all the kids who are out of school. And because they're out of school, they're not getting as much food on a daily basis. Yeah. So yeah. getting something like this back, especially for those poor families, um, should hopefully help them be able to feed their kids better and, you know, their kids hopefully will be going to bed hungry and that kind of stuff. So I see a lot of value here, but I do see that, you know, that we have to be careful too, that people are using it. And of course you can't really police everybody, but um, you know, the, I, hopefully, you know, people are using it for what it's intended for. And it actually is doing what people want it to be doing, which is helping them take care of their, their children. So Aaron, what are your thoughts? Um. Well, I won't lie. I totally posted on Facebook how excited I was when that first check came in. I have four kids and we live on one income. So we're a six person family on one income. Yeah. My husband really does a lot of money. So it was good. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not going to lie. But I was totally with all the people in that article being excited about it. But it definitely made me nervous when I first heard about it because my greatest fear is owing money back in mm -hmm. April or, you know, when you do your taxes. Right. And we had a close friend who's a CPA who helped us with some other uh, financial decisions. And so he knew our financial situation. So I could just send him a text message saying, do we need to opt out of this, you know, or is this going to be okay? We always get a refund and, you know, and he went ahead and told us, okay, you, you'll be fine because it's only six months and you'll just have less of a refund probably um, this next year. And I, I, I just get nervous because the tax laws are so complicated that mm -hmm. the people that we might be benefiting by giving them a little bit throughout the year, it could come back to be problematic if we do this year round. Because I don't even know year round we would be, you knowing how much they gave us per kid. I'm like, if we did this for 12 months, I would owe money if I understand it correctly. And I think it's too new to really understand. I'm not an economist either. Um, but 
at, at the same time, like I, I know we're using it to send one of our kids to a daycare. Um, and that alleviated a ton mm-hmm. from the cost. I mean, it is you know, 300 per kid and daycare ranges from 700 to a thousand per child. I'm like, it clearly does yeah. not cover it. So I don't think we can even use it as an argument like this will bring women um, and other caregivers back to the workforce because mm. it doesn't really alleviate that. But I, th- I like the idea. Um, we obviously are going to use it for the kids rather than one giant check, you know, in the spring where we would use that for some house project. Um, so it did change how we're going to spend this money, um, as opposed to a very large sum, um, after the tax return, but I do appreciate speaking about kids and being poorly, you know, nourished and the, at least for Texas, I don't know if it's the whole country, but they're having public school systems are going to have free lunches again, um, this next school year. And part of that is to help um, make sure kids are getting adequate meals. Um, I have a child that's in special education and because of his enrollment in special ed, he automatically gets that free meal. Um, So we have programs out there like to help certain kids, but if you're, you know, a typically functioning child, but not low income, you wouldn't have the free meal option. So, I think this will help in different ways. I like the feeling of it, but I think sometimes we we don't see too far in the future of what twelve months on an you know on an income like ours. Are we going to owe money if I opt in? And I don't know. And then is that beneficial that we use the money all year long and then now suddenly we owe? I'm I'm excited to have it. I think I sit down with somebody who understands tax laws to know if I would want this to be year round every single year or what could we do to make sure it's not a burden when tax season comes around. Yeah, I think that's a good word of wisdom. You know, um, a lot of people I think are very excited right now that they have it. Uh, But, you know, depending on how that makes people spend other funds, you know, or yeah, hey, we got this now. We don't need to put anything in savings. The next thing you know, <laughs> next time you do your taxes, you owe $2,000 or $5,000 or whatever. And then you're like, oh, this didn't help me at all. And then it ended up with what Randall said, uh, you know, created a bigger problem because it wasn't really thought through as well as it perhaps should have been. And so I'm not saying that's the case with this. Um, uh, but I, I, do, uh, I do think that, uh, you know, as Christians, we should have a desire to uh, help those who are in need. And when our government tries to help those who are in need, I think we should do our best to support that. But we should also think critically about how they're trying to help those in need to make sure it's something that's really going to help. We're not trying to create a crutch. You know, I think one of the other big potential problems with this is that people get used to relying on this and then it goes away. And the next thing you know, they're like, oh, no, we were relying on that money for, from now on. And now we're not going to get it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that that could end up being a pretty significant problem as well. And so, uh, you know, it's nice to have the bonus and especially nice to have the bonus when the economy's sort of in a weird state. 
And clearly the economy is in a weird state right now. I just read another article yesterday saying that the economy is back. It's just different than it was before. And this is yeah. a sort of the new normal. I don't know if that's correct or if that's just one person's opinion. And so I'm not suggesting that that is, you know, our economy now is the new normal. Uh, what I'm simply saying is, you know, there's a lot of wheels in motion here. And we really do want to just make sure that, you know, when we support what the government's doing, that it's because we believe what it's doing is actually the best for people. And so if you're getting the stimulus checks right now, or I guess they're not really stimulus checks, they're child tax credit checks. But if you're getting these checks, uh, you know, my word of caution to you is use the money wisely and think through, you know, how you're using it for your family, but also uh, thank God for the blessing of getting it. If it is helping you out, be grateful for it, be content with it, uh, however much you're getting or however little you're getting, depending on how many kids you have. And, um, you know, and as you use it and as you think about the blessings of having it, uh, keep in mind that it's not something you uh, know for a fact is going to be a permanent thing. So don't go changing, right. you know, your, your lifestyle habits, you know, uh, oh, we get this now, let's go you know, buy a new car, we can start having a higher car payment or whatever. I mean, it's not a good idea if it goes away in a year and then all of a sudden you can't make those payments. So, um, you know, using it for your kids for like daycare costs, I think that's kind of the ideal thing. You know, uh, right now it's a really great time for it because a lot of people are needing to get their kids new clothes for the next school year. So, you know, being able to help with that kind of stuff is a really good thing. Uh, And then of course, you know, putting more food on the table for your kids is also uh, something that can hopefully benefit a lot of people. So all that being said, it seems like a great thing. It seems like a good idea to help parents out. I love the idea of the government more permanently helping parents out. I'm not sure getting a, a refund every month from the government is the best way to do it. Um, I think perhaps just sort of lowering the taxes of people with kids might be a more beneficial option. That way, when you get paid, you just get more of your paycheck, you know, <laughs> but uh, anyway, all that being said, uh, we now sort of turn to a slightly different topic. And uh, Aaron, go ahead. Okay. Um, so in the last, well, in the last few weeks, especially with Jeff Bezos going on to space and um, now personal spacecrafts um, and, you know, landing the rover Mars, um, we have this kind of increase in space i love space i love all things sci-fi um that's always been close to and uh but what's funny about it is as an early believer i was taught so strictly that science and faith could not go together um i do not hold to that view anymore um and i was always that if they found life outside of earth it would just completely nullify my faith contradict the bible and so i bring that question to y'all um just asking is there a issue if we were to find life another planet and then going even one step further if it was found what salvific issues are really being raised um would you you know are they sinners also would they have to die you know would jesus have to die for their sins as well how does that work so I am interested to hear what y'all have to say. Yeah, well, I would say that I don't think it absolutely in any way does any damage to my faith. 
in fact, I believe that our God is not just the God of the world, but the God of the universe, and that he created all things, and that all things have come into existence through his word. And uh, we learn in scripture that Jesus is not just redeeming people, but he's redeeming all of creation. And so for me, the idea that there's other life out there has no real negative bearing on my Christian faith. Um, I've heard um, statisticians, statisticians, whatever, right? Uh, I've heard people that do statistics <laughs> and they say that probabilistically uh, there may not be life out there because if there was, and if the universe is as old as we think it is, then other people, other beings would have found us by now. And uh, I get the probability of that and the understanding of that, but I also recognize that that, um, that is presupposing a billions of years old universe. And I think that when God created the universe, he spoke it into existence. And I think he did so in a mature state, which makes the world and every other thing around it seem potentially older than it actually is. Um, that doesn't make faith and science um, incompatible uh, because science is based on what we observe and um, our faith is based on what God has revealed. And if God in fact created a world in a mature state, it would look much older than it may actually be. And I think you would make the same case for the universe. That being said, if you're a young earth person, probabilistically, the chances of some other life form finding us are not as crazy as they are if the universe is as old as we say it is. Um, I would be highly surprised if there wasn't at least plant life and maybe even some kind of animal life out there besides what we have on this planet. Um, I don't think that I would want to put God in the box of saying he only created things with, you know, the ability to, you know, eat and grow and reproduce on this planet. That just doesn't really seem to make sense. However, when it comes to uh, more sentient type beings, uh, then uh, the question becomes, what do you do with salvation for them? And this is where I sort of uh, probably sound a little crazy to some people, but I like Star Wars. And in Star Wars, no matter what planet you're on, you seem to know about the Jedi and you seem to know about the Force. And no matter what planet you're on, you may not have a very deep understanding of it, but there's some kind of concept referring to it, right? And um, in our own world, you know, if Christ is who he said he was, if he died uh, for the sins of humanity, but also as the savior of the universe, then it doesn't seem very far-fetched to me to think that God could reveal what happened on this planet to any other being out there that might also be corrupted by sin. Uh, my argument with sin on this would simply be that when Adam chose to eat the fruit, God came down and he pronounced a curse not only on the man and the woman and the devil, but he also uh, pronounced curses upon all of the rest of creation. So I think it's far-fetched. I don't think it would be limited to just this planet. I think it would extend to everything that God has created. And uh, as a result, um, the death of Christ on the cross also extends to everything God has created. So those are sort of my quick thoughts on that. Randall, what do you think? <laughs> 
Well, I, I agree that, um, well, I guess um, I would probably not consider myself a young earther, um, but uh, I, I agree with kind of what you've laid out. I, I don't see how it has really any negative bearing on my faith if we were to find any kind of life anywhere else. Um, I tend to agree with, with what scientists tell us. It seems highly unlikely. Uh, and part of it is, I, as I read scripture, life is described as a kind of a numinous activity of God. If God withdrew his spirit, everything would cease to live immediately. There's, it is by the spirit of God that life exists to begin with. And it, it's, it's interesting how matter, when it's affected by life, behaves differently than matter when it isn't affected by life. Um, even plant life or, you know, it's just different. It, it, isn't, it doesn't just follow kind of laws of nature, there's something else going on. And uh, the, the Bible is written kind of from the perspective of, you know, this is where God has placed life and this is the purpose. Uh, all of creation is kind of painted in scripture is centering around that. Um, so we do have a very Adam-centric approach to the universe in scripture. But I don't think there's anything in scripture that would preclude there being life anywhere else. There's nothing that says it isn't there. Uh, and I, I think it's just like anything else. We would need to broaden our understanding if we were presented with this and, and figure out how that fits within what we know, how, how, how our faith accommodates uh, what the reality is. Uh, and I, I do think in terms of theology, the big question for me is, is the whole issue of the fall. And I think, I think you described it uh, accurately. It is described biblically as that in Adam, all of creation falls. So it isn't just a human problem. It's a creation-wide problem. I believe that the fall of Adam is the reason we have fallen angels and demons and Satan becomes the enemy. Uh, I think all of that is tied into the fall of man. Uh, so, uh, I would, if I were to speculate, if we were to find sentient life somewhere else, I would expect it to have also uh, had to deal with uh, the reality of, of sin and that they would be included in God's plans uh, in terms of the, the rescue of all creation, because that's the way Jesus presents himself. You know, he has come to give his flesh for the life of the cosmos. Um, it isn't just, you know, this planet, uh, but, but ever, all creation he came to redeem. So I, God would have to kind of help us figure it out, but I, I don't see that categorically that would deny the faith in any sense. Um, uh, we, we would just have to deal with it as it came. But saying all of that, even though I love sci-fi, uh, I would be very, very shocked if we ever found anything like that. Um, it just doesn't seem probable. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, if, if it were kind of the, the atheistic evolutionary perspective, 
I think you would expect to find life all over the place. If, if it's just this natural chemical thing, you get the right settings and enough time and all these planets have had the same amount of time to do whatever, you would expect life to be everywhere. Uh, but if it's, if it's a specific activity of God, then uh, maybe it, it isn't. It's only wherever God has chosen to put it. And uh, it has nothing to do with kind of the mechanical operation of the universe. Uh, if that's the case, uh, then it may be that, that this is it. I appreciate you guys <laughs> because I don't, I don't have any conclusions. Um, but I think that, you know, how I read Genesis and how that has changed from how I was initially taught as a young believer, it was a very staunch young earth, literal 24 hour day kind of um, concept. I don't hold to that. I'm definitely an old earth, old earther these days. Um, and just in a lot of that deals with, um, you know, I spend my research right now is ancient Near Eastern cosmologies and, and just understanding how and the purpose of why a lot of these stories were written. Um, and I think that for me, one of the big problems with this idea of like finding life somewhere else is that it would shatter this human centered <laughs> world you know we we definitely believe that everything revolves around humanity and that we are god's greatest gift to this world but that would obviously humble us to the place that we probably really need to be um and i think it's interesting you know the idea of if this fall was a cosmic multi-universe problem would that mean that sentient beings one day woke up and sin was in their world but what was that like and did would jesus have to appear to them i feel like the mormons tried to do that with the native american you know concept of yeah. salvation that was so we don't credit that with any you know um validity but I, I think it opens a lot of questions, but for me, it's mostly wrestling with how does it bother me um, to, to accept the idea that life could exist on another planet? Like what happens if Mars finds something showing a previous, um, you know, some sort of life form, whether it's sentient or not. Um, but I don't, now it's not scary. It doesn't shake my faith. Um, and I, I'm, as I get older and, and in my faith have grown, I see that science and faith are not always enemies, um, you know, and, and uh, that's a lot of maturity <laughs> to have to <laughs> lay down um, some things that I think have just been cultural influences rather than biblically based. Um, but with that, it makes me think about the question that Randall was going to ask when we when we start thinking about does the world really evolve, revolve around humanity i feel like uh, that deals with his quite a bit yeah so you know i think that when people have um, a lot of presuppositions about exactly what creation looks like in the bible and um, they begin to sort of draw conclusions from that Part of the issue is that a lot of times people develop these boxes and anything that doesn't fit in that box, they have a really difficult time with. So 
with regard to the idea of life on other planets, people go, no, God created life on this planet, this planet alone. Well, the Bible doesn't say he created it on this planet alone. It just notes that he's the one who created it on this planet. And so anytime you start getting dogmatic about things that the Bible is silent about, then you run into problems of having a faith crisis because you're looking for something to be a certain way. And as it turns out, your understanding of what you understood the Bible to say, because you were basing it on uh, inference as opposed to very clear text, then uh, you end up in trouble. And I've seen that a lot with, uh, you know, people who have an understanding of say prayer and, you know, well, I prayed and God didn't do this, therefore he's not there. Well, he didn't answer your prayer the way you wanted him to answer the prayer. And you thought that that was the only way to answer that prayer. And so you have a crisis of faith because things didn't happen according to your will, but that doesn't mean they didn't happen according to God's will. And so we have to really be careful about being dogmatic about things that scripture doesn't necessarily say explicitly. Um, With that being said, um, you know, we trust that our God is the God who created all things. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Randall said, you know, probabilistically, it's not very likely. And the atheistic evolution uh, idea does suggest that there should be life all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even if a planet's conditions are different than ours, something should have been able to grow and, and, and become a living being there. Uh, even if it doesn't have the same kind of lungs we do or have, you know, breathe the same kind of air we breathe, right? Right. Uh, And we don't see that. And that does, I think, really speak to the specialness of the creation in our world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether you hold to six literal days or God uh, sort of designing and guiding things over a longer period of time. Um, I I will say that, uh, uh, you know, when we look at the Genesis narrative, There are several good ways to read that and understand that. Uh, I think a lot of Christians today, especially in the Bible Belt, are very apprehensive about anything that suggests other than a literal six-day creation, but and they attribute that to evolution, but they don't realize that people were talking about creation other than literal six days as early as the second century AD, and so, and um, there were books written about it by the fourth century AD. Uh, so entire books on, on the issue. So um, it's certainly not new to Christianity. It's certainly not new to uh, just sort of this, oh, this is now that evolution has come about, we have to reevaluate how we understand Genesis. Well, people have been evaluating the understanding of Genesis yeah. since, you know, 1500 years before Darwin was writing about it. And um, with that being uh, the way it is, um, I would just encourage you, uh, if you're listening, to, uh, to think through the creation accounts and, uh, you know, recognize that there are several ways to look at it. I hold to a literal creation in six days. I would consider myself a young earth person, but not like a 6,000-year-old earth young person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you can use the genealogies in Genesis to figure out what year the earth was created. That's a really right. bad process. <laughs> right. It doesn't work for many reasons that we don't yeah. even want to get into today. But yeah. um, uh, I would say that, you know, I think the earth is uh, 
thousands of years old, not billions of years old, but at the same time, uh, you know, if I learned that uh, my way of thinking on that is incorrect, it wouldn't shake my faith either, because either way, the story is clear that God's the one who did it. So with that being said, and with us uh, uh, continuing to talk about how we understand things in Scripture, uh, Randall, I'll go ahead and turn it over to you to talk about how we understand how things in our life and the world around us work for good. Yeah, real quick, just on that final thought you had before I I talk about my question, uh, I would suggest you talk about different ways of looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Um, I think it if you recognize that it is a highly stylized passage, uh, kind of like John one, mm-hmm. uh, the opening verses of John one, it just, it, it, it's something highly polished and put together and crafted uh, in a different way than the rest of the narrative. Um, and I, I would argue that the main dominant theme in this is uh, intelligent design as opposed to chronology. Yeah, and if you look so, at it that and- way, do what? Uh, I said very much so. And in fact, you, you see it as sort of, you know, uh, and, and when you look at other ancient Near East creation accounts, you see very similar ideas of uh, chaos to order, right. uh, creating and filling. And yeah. uh, you have these two ideas of, you know, God taking something that's void uh, and formless. That's chaos. Yeah. And then designing it in such a way that it's all ordered. And not only is it ordered, but things are filled properly in the order. And so you you do see uh, see a a very definite literary structure there. And I don't think you can appropriately or properly read the the narrative without having that in mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good. Thank you, Randall. But anyway, just throwing that out there. Okay, so let me get let me get to my question. I've been I've started watching a show. I'm still deciding whether I want to keep watching it, but. Uh, a show called Manifest. I, I want to say it's on Netflix. I don't know. But uh, a recurring theme, at least in the first few episodes, uh, is uh, in the opening episode, there's this quote from Romans 828. It's kind of truncated to, to leave out pretty important information. But um, one of the main characters is struggling with guilt. She's had an auto accident. She was driving. Her best friend was killed. Um, and her mother tells her, even people that have made mistakes deserve happiness. You know my favorite verse, all things work together for good. And then the daughter responds, I don't believe that anymore, mom. How can I? So in light of her personal tragedy, she sees no reason to believe that God works things for good. Uh, and I, I this has also been on my mind because I recently preached uh, a sermon on Joseph and looking at his life uh, marked by tremendous loss. You know, I mean, he was he went from being dad's favorite kid to his brothers debating whether to kill him or sell him as a slave. And they sell him off into slavery. He's done nothing wrong to warrant this. But and then as a slave, he's his master's wife tries to seduce him and he does the right thing. He refuses. And so she falsely accuses him. He ends up in prison. I mean, it just, every time he does the right thing and he expressly says he's doing this because he has to honor God. How can I do this and sin against God? He says, Uh, and it's like God leaves him hanging, you know, I mean, he ends up in prison in an Egyptian prison in 
whatever thousand BC we're talking about, I wouldn't want to be in an Egyptian prison today. Uh, surely it was it was horrendous life circumstances, and it was it just went from bad to worse to worse. And he stuck to his guns, you know. And of course, ultimately, uh, he interprets the dream of the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh makes him the second in command to prepare Egypt for a worldwide famine, or at least in that area of the world, a, a huge famine. Um, and he's he's able to not only save the life of his family but uh, everybody in the ancient world in a critical moment. Um, and it's interesting how Joseph late in life interprets this. You meant evil against me, he's talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And I think a lot of times we misread Joseph's story and think it's kind of the rags to riches, you know, you do the right thing and eventually you'll be famous and recognized and wealthy and all the good stuff will come to you. I don't think Joseph cared about those things. And I think the thing he realized his life was about was that God wanted to save the lives of so many people in this critical juncture, and he had to do all this to prepare him to be the right guy to do that. And uh, so he interpreted his suffering in light of God's good plan, not so much for his benefit, but his good plan to save the lives of all these people that were going to die otherwise. So my question is, does God work all things for our good individually or for his good on a global cosmic scale? And in light of that, what should our biblical teaching be to people eager to appropriate these promises for individual purposes, not the broader purposes of God? Well, so I want to begin answering this by going back to the quote from the television show. And uh, the woman says something to the effect of even, you know, people that have done whatever wrong, however you said it, deserve to be happy. Yeah. And uh, I think there's a big problem in confusing good with happiness. Yeah. And yeah. Um, typically when people read the passage in the New Testament that God works things out for the good of those who love him, um, the the thing is, people see that and go, oh, God wants me to have what I want in life. God wants me to be successful in my job. God wants me to have this car. You know, who prays about getting a nice car and says, oh, God said no. <laughs> no, people are praying about it because they want it. And they're thinking, surely God wants me to have this because he wants what's good for me. Right. And uh, they, they have this confusion between goodness and happiness. And I think a lot of our health and wealth preachers on television don't really help that situation very much. Um, they, they constantly talk about things like, uh, you know, God wants you to have a good, you know, amount of money in your bank account. And uh, God wants you to have a nice home to live in and a good neighborhood. Um, you know, recently did a podcast with Damian Williams about church planting in urban areas. You know, I talked, you know, being at a, being at a, Bible college, I talk to a lot of people who want to plant churches, and the number of people who want to go to hard places to plant churches is a lot slimmer than the number of people that want to go to this nice new area they're building up over here. I'm going to plant a church there for those good people who uh, probably don't really 
uh, you know, have nearly the kinds of struggles that you would in more urban areas, you know. So um, I, I think that the understanding of goodness in scripture should always point us back to the glory of God. And God's goodness is typically wrapped up in his doing what is best for his creation. And that would be a communal understanding of his creation more than an individualistic understanding of his creation. So I would reject the idea and even say that the New Testament quote is taken out of context when people tend to apply it to themselves. Yeah. Sometimes the good that comes out of something isn't even realized in a certain person's life. Right. You know, uh, I think about Jeremiah the prophet. Yeah. He was a prophet for 50 years, and the people beat him, and the people starved him, and the people dug a pit and threw him in it, um, and then he couldn't get out of the pit. The people did all kinds of bad things to him, and then he got drug off to Babylon and died, and he did what God called him to do and told him to do for half a century, and it doesn't even record one single convert, one single person to actually heed his advice in his entire 50-year ministry. But now we have much of the Old Testament, uh, much of the Hebrew scriptures, thanks to Jeremiah. And so he was doing exactly what God wanted, and God benefited lots of people through his work. But I don't think Jeremiah ever came to the realization of that in his own lifetime. And so we frequently want to apply these promises to ourselves when really they are meant uh, the way that Joseph understood them for the good of people, not just him. And, and this, again, this rags to riches thing. I think you hear health and wealth guys all the time talk about Joseph. Yeah. And, you know, you know, God wanted what was best for Joseph. And when Joseph finally realized it, he came into his position of power. That's not what happened at all, you know. Uh, it wasn't that Joseph realized anything. Joseph was just trying to live in a way that honored God, no matter what circumstance he was in. Yeah. And when Paul writes about um, things being good, uh, you know, he's he's. It's not like he has an easy life. I mean, we know for a fact that he had poor eyesight, that he had problems walking, that. Um, he clearly had some kind of arthritis or something later on, probably because of all the leather work he'd been doing with his hands um, and was having a hard time even holding pens to, to continue writing on you know, papyrus. And I'm using the word pen very loosely there, um, not like a bick or something like that. But, um, you know, Paul had a lot of struggles and Paul was thrown in prison numerous times. Paul was beaten numerous times. Paul was shipwrecked. And he was beheaded. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's not like, you know, he had this great, outstanding, happy life. But he had a lot of fulfillment in life because he was doing what God called him to do. And even in the midst of uh, being in prison, he felt like he was where God wanted him to be. And I think as Christians, we need to wrap our minds around this in such a way that we say, in the midst of life's storms, in the midst of the bad things that happen around us, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our trouble, God is still in control and he's still working things out for his good. I think we also have to be very careful too about always thinking that we understand bad situations. So in that TV show, this girl apparently has a car wreck and somebody dies, right? 
and so it would be very easy for someone to say, well, you know, there's a spiritual benefit to this. And uh, that's a, a very callous thing to say. I mean, somebody, somebody died. And the reason they died is because we live in a world that contains moral evil and natural evil. And they contain natural evil and moral evil in the world because we have sin in the world. And sin makes things not how they should be. And so in our own lives, uh, because of our sin, because of the sin of others, because of sin in the world, things don't happen as they should. And there are godly people who don't get that promotion at work. And there are godly people who never get, become a published author, even though that's what they want to do. You know, there are godly people who want to have children and cannot have children. And there is no reason for them to feel guilty for those things. Um, but it's also wrong for someone to tritely say to them, God works this out for good. You can't have kids, but it'll work out for good. Um, that's not, you know, that's not how you understand the passage. You understand the passage by saying, you know, yeah, this is real tragic and I'm sorry you can't have children. Um, God is still in control, even in the midst of your life feeling out of control. And his plans are bigger than you. They're bigger than me. And um, for whatever reason, this is, this is how things are right now with you. But we trust God in the midst of this difficult situation and understand that he is with you in the midst of this situation. So I guess those are some of my basic thoughts on this. But Aaron, I'll let you take over now. Well, I agree that, you know, there is a problem when we take that verse individually. Um, mostly because just life will prove that wrong really fast. Um and, you know, in biblically, we've, we've listed so many people already. Um, I thought about Esther, you know, the concept of being basically, I don't know, sold or given to a foreign person to be one of many wives sounds pretty terrible. Um, you know, it, but that, that situation ended up being another example where she was in the right place in order to advocate for God's people and preserve the lives of many people, right. uh, much like Joseph did. Um, and, you know, at personal risk, um, we know from the story. And just I, and also I think that, of, Aaron, uh, do what? Just, just real quick on that, you know, studying the life of Esther, uh, they've, you know, uh, typically in the ancient world, you had your Hebrew name and then you had your name for whatever other culture you're in. So there's some confusion as to exactly which one of Artaxerxes' wives she was. Mm -hmm. um, but what's adamantly clear or abundantly clear is that probably her and Mordecai were both put to death after the king's death, because typically when a king died, any one part of his regime was also off. <laughs> and uh, uh, so we even know now that um, based on, you know, archaeological evidence and other writings, uh, it's it's almost like 99% certainty that she was put to death about eight to 10 years after she saved all the Jewish people. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, you know, you think about that. I think I thought about John the Baptist um, when he asks Jesus, are you the Christ? And you get this wonderful answer, like the blind see and the lame walk. And then it's like, but John is still in jail. And, yeah. you know, he is still beheaded. Um, 
you know, he has a close relationship with, with Jesus, but that didn't save him from the circumstances and, and, um, you know, and pain and suffering. And so we clearly don't have, um, a Bible full of great stories of rags to riches. There are some, um, and we thank God for those, for those examples. It might be a little more depressing to be a believer if we didn't have at least one or two stories out there. Um, but I, I still think it goes back to our culture and um, a very individualized mentality. Um, I think if somebody came to me wanting to apply this to themselves and and it's my you know call to disciple them and, and help them through kind of re-understanding that, I would probably point out how this is a common struggle that we take a lot of verses and try to apply that very personally. Like this is, this is the truth for my life um, in places that they probably should not be applied. Um, and I think it's a result of I, I probably American culture, just cause that's my experience. Um, you know, we live in an, in households where it's basically the nuclear family. We don't have to worry about other generations with us, not in, in many families, we all have our own cars, our own phones, like own TVs in our room. Like we don't have a outside of us um, mentality, at least not naturally. I think it's something we have to build and work really hard at. Um, so that would be something that I think that needs to be taught more that to see the shortcomings of our own subconscious cultural bias when we read scripture. Um, and really, I think that as a whole, we don't teach pain and suffering very well. Um, we, we do equate happy and good. A good life is a happy life that, you know, taking that quote, that's the mathematics of it. Um, and I know in a personal experience, um, our youngest two kids are twins who had a horribly complicated pregnancy. And it was a dark, dark time because it was every week deciding, you know, are they still alive? What's the terrible outcome? Because that was really the only, um, that's the only outcome that the medical world could give us was that it was going to be bad and it was going to be really painful emotionally and everything was going to be bad. And it was a hard time of wrestling. Like, you know, is God going to work this out for good? And if that is the truth of the Bible, I had to make sure that I understood, well, the good is not my personal circumstance, it will be the greater good. And it has been, I could easily say, yes, that, that scenario was used for the greater good because I now take my pain and, you know, I have like PTSD from this whole experience. And, and even though that won't go away um, or has yet to go away, I can go to other people who suffer and have the same similar pains and be able to encourage them outside of those platitudes, like you said, it's not helpful to say, oh, there's a spiritual lesson here. And that was definitely said to me quite a bit, <laughs> you know, like God is going to do great things with this. I'm like, really? Because, you know, I'm having a hard time coping every day. Um, and, and I think it takes time. We are so bound by time. And if it doesn't happen now, we can't possibly see any benefit. Again, a, a, probably a very American, you know, problem that we want it, the solution now, we want it to be personally beneficial. Otherwise it's worthless. Um, and I think as a church and as believers, we 
probably need to teach these aspects better, that a good life is not an easy life. Um, and then my research right now is heavily in Job. And at the end of Job, okay. I'm, I'm doing Leviathan. So it's funny. I keep asking myself, Job has this horrible experience. And what's God's answer? Leviathan. To, to exert his authority and tell how, how much he can subdue Leviathan. That's his answer for pain. And, and as you read the cosmologies, you really see that Leviathan is chaos. You know, he is this epitome of all the chaos, you know, Baal, you're never really sure, is he going to win against Leviathan? And, you know, of course, Baal dies and comes back, you know, and there's always an uncertainty in the Canaanite cosmology. But when you come to the Old Testament and we're talking about Leviathan and God, there's no uncertainty. It's, I, you know, I have already subdued Leviathan. He is my pet. You know, it's, uh, there's like a peace and a rest there that, the other ancient Near Eastern cultures didn't provide. Um, and I think that's where we probably need to teach better and probably need to teach these characters' lives in the full scope that they actually existed. Because we just read them chapter after chapter, and it sounds like they're so close. Like, oh, poor Joseph, he had this bad thing. Verse two, you know, this good thing happened. But to see that that was probably decades apart, that there was probably kind of a miserable period there. And what did Joseph do? in that time. So those would be my thoughts on how we can adjust it, but it is definitely not an individual, yeah. you know, verse that we can apply all the time. I would like to add two more examples, just real briefly. One is people who are put in prison wrongly and then they become acquitted. And then someone says to them, well, God will work this out for good. And they're like, I lost 19 years of my life. Which, yeah. There's still good in that. Right. Um, and then the second thing is people with mental health concerns, um, mm -hmm. people who are struggling with depression, and they're often told things like, oh, you know, God's teaching you a lesson through this, or, well, you just need to have more faith in God, and he'll heal you from this. You know, the fact is, some people with mental depression never, ever get healed from it. It's a lifelong thing, and uh, even if they know what, you know, caused the initial trauma, um, it's not like they can just tell their brain, hey, rewire yourself, we're done with this. I mean, it doesn't work that way. And so uh, I, I think we as Christians need to be really careful about speaking for God and saying things to people like, oh, there'll be good come out of this, or, oh, you know, oh, you, you lost your job and you lost your home and now your kids and your wife and you are all living in a car. Well, it'll work out for good. That's that's just not really, you know, appropriate as a, as a Christian response. I think what we say is, I'm so sorry that's happened to you. This is a real tragedy. How can we help you? And, uh, you know, what can we do to ease your suffering? Uh, we also look at the, the other scriptures in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And um, Peter says, Christ died and suffered as an example for us to follow suggesting that there is suffering as part of life for all Christians. Uh, one of the things I really liked about uh, the movie, and I couldn't remember the name of it the other day on another podcast, but I quoted the same one, Inside Out, that's what it is, uh, about all the little, you know, emotions in the head. And um, the, the film is essentially teaching that sadness is an emotion that you should embrace and not uh, push to the side. Uh, suffering is part of life. Yeah. And because suffering is part of life, you have to learn how to 
cope and live in the midst of the suffering. And, um, you know, the fact that we do suffer doesn't negate the fact that God works things out for good. But when we start thinking the good he's working things out for is my good and what I think is good, uh, we get ourselves into trouble. Things are working out for good because God is in the process of redeeming all of creation. But that redemption is taking a really long time. And it's going to take a lot longer. So, Randall, any other thoughts from you well, on this? Well, that's great. I, I really appreciate y'all's thoughts on the topic. I, um, I think it is an important topic for us who are in positions of teaching in the life of the church to help people wrestle with these things because so much flippant and superficial uh teaching goes out and people mean well I think uh, when they say these things to people who are suffering but uh, and I, and I would highlight that it is as broad a promise as people think it is to those who love God all things work together for good it isn't just a few things it is every single thing works together for good what we need to help each other realize is what, what is the good God is working towards? And uh, I think one of the things he wants, one of the, uh, to me, probably the biggest personal benefit from salvation in Christ is the transformation he means to accomplish in me. That's the greatest personal benefit I'm going to get from Christ. That means, hopefully, that he's, he's bringing me from where I was, and eventually at the day of glorification, he'll take me across the finish line, but he is drawing me into a life where I am much more concerned about other people than myself, where my joy is found not in my personal gain, but in the gain of others. And sometimes suffering gets us there. Sometimes suffering opens up a whole world of compassion we never knew. And, and it is the gift. It isn't just, uh, you know, uh, a mechanism for some greater good later on, which it all, the, way, the way God ties it all together, it's like there, there are these tendrils coming out from it that connect all over the place, you know? But I, I think there is a great personal benefit in the goodness God is at work accomplishing. And, and, and I would encourage people to think of it as God is reshaping me. God is making my, who I am different. And uh, that fits within the broader scope of the goodness he is bringing to bear in the world. But it, it does, I think there's comfort in thinking that every horrible thing in my life God is so powerful and so good that he is up to something good with this. I may never see it. I may never be the one that directly benefits from it, but I'm suffering this because something good is going to come out of it. And, and that's, I think that's a healthy perspective. And it comes back to faith. You know, you, you understand that, not because you perceive all the ramifications of it, but you know that the God who promised he's doing this is doing this. And you can rest in that and find, I think, some degree of comfort uh, in the midst of, of suffering um, that uh, my pain is not wasted pain. Uh, 
God is doing something good with it. Uh, but, but, and learning to rejoice in that, that even if I never see it myself, I know God's going to do something good out of this. I, th I think finding satisfaction in, uh, you know, that, that hope that, that kind of is the buoy uh, that keeps us afloat. You know, this, this biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Uh, it's certainty rooted in God. And it connects us to what is beyond the scope of the present. Uh, but, but it's a very real thing. It's a certain, you know, it's like saying, I hope the sun comes up tomorrow. Well, yeah, I, that's a pretty well-founded hope. Uh, you know, it's th that's biblical hope, you know, um, but uh, we need to do a lot more teaching that following Christ is about denying self, and we have to give up the self-centered approach to life we had and discover that there's a better, fuller, more glorious way to be human um, and, and encourage people to embrace that as, as what it means to be in the Christian walk. Very good. I think that uh, that nicely sums things up. I want to also say Stephen Colbert, the late night talk show host, just released a book. And um, some may not know or may know that he claims to be a Christian. I'm, I'm not surprised that he does. I, my understanding is that he's um, a Catholic believer. And uh, anyway, there's an entire section in his book about suffering and seeing suffering in life as a gift from God. And so uh, you had mentioned that briefly a second ago, Randall, so I wanted to just point, point out that uh, that book was just released, and there's certainly a section about that in there, which is interesting. It's sort of like a autobiographical type book, you know, uh, but um, whether you are easily shaken in your faith at the idea of life out there <laughs> beyond our horizon, uh, or whether you are uh, grateful that you are getting a little bit of help from the government right now to make it from paycheck to paycheck uh, over the next few months, uh, or whether or not you have been struggling with something. Um, right now, I know I think three different people, four different people struggling with cancer. And, um, you know, no matter what's going on, God is still in control. He's in control of the universe He's in control of our finances. He's in control of um, our health. He's in control of all of our suffering. And he's in control in the midst of our suffering. And uh, he's also with us in that. So uh, if you've been listening today, the one thing I want to encourage you to do is just rest in God. Trust him. Trust his ways. His ways are not our ways, but they're greater than our ways. And uh, we believe that God is good. And because we believe God is good, we believe he is worthy of our trust. And as Randall said, even if we don't really know what's going to happen with everything that's going on in our world around us, uh, even if we don't know why we're going through something, and even if we never see the benefits of why we're going through something, we trust that there is a reason why things happen and that God is in control and that God is good. So thank you guys for being on the show today. Those of you listening, thanks for listening to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. And we will see you again next time.